G'day, I hope that you're having a fantastic day. Now, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Joanna Howe for speaking with me so openly and honestly about some very difficult subjects and some that we may have disagreements on as well. But some of these are occurrences of which I didn't actually think happened in a country like Australia, that I thought laws would be in place for this. Now, some of this is very confronting and honestly unbelievable, but all of Dr. Joanna's sources and peer-reviewed studies are on her website, which is linked below. Now, firstly, who is Dr. Joanna Howe? Well, from her website, Dr. Joanna Howe is a professor of law and a mother of five. After finishing a Bachelor of Economics and Law with first-class honours at the University of Sydney, Joanna undertook a Doctorate of Philosophy in Law at the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. After the birth of her first child in Oxford and pregnant with her second, Joanna was appointed as a lecturer at the University of Adelaide, where she has since built her academic career. One of Australia's foremost legal scholars in the field of labour migration, Joanna was invited by the Prime Minister to attend the inaugural Jobs and Skills Summit in 2022, alongside a hundred other eminent Australians. She was subsequently appointed by the federal government as part of an expert panel to review the Australian Migration Program, and she serves on advisory bodies for the Federal Minister for Immigration and the International Labour Organisation. She's the author and co-editor of three books and over 50 journal articles. Joanna is a recipient of the South Australia's In Daily 40 Under 40 Award and the University of Adelaide's Women's Research Excellence Award. It was when the South Australian Parliament passed new laws to introduce abortion up to birth that Joanna felt compelled to devote her life to ending abortion based on the conviction that abortion harms women and is the most horrific human rights abuse in Australia today. Now, no matter where you fall on the spectrum of pro-life or pro-choice, I believe that you will get a lot of this and learn a lot that I didn't know, especially about the failed abortions and children being born alive and then left. But I'll leave it up to Joanna to explain as she's the expert. Thank you, Dr. Joanna Howe. Enjoy. Dr. Joanna Howe, thank you so much for joining me. And your story, I found incredibly interesting of what you're sharing. Oh, thanks. Uh, it's so good to be here. I um, obviously looked into you when you reached out and I feel like your story is very compelling, but you know, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this issue because it is so controversial. Yeah, it, it is. And when I first heard about it, I didn't believe it. I was told off my family about mm. what you're doing and the work and what you're sharing. And I, I was a bit like, this can't, this can't be right. It's yeah. Australia. Australia is one <laughs> yeah. of like, almost like the softest countries in the world, like yeah. a nanny state of the yeah. world. And yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. And yet we do have the most radical abortion laws in the world. So there's seven countries with laws as extreme as ours. So we're in that short list with China and North Korea in terms of allowing abortion right up until birth and on demand. And you're not alone in not knowing about this. In 2021, when SA was debating abortion up to birth, a friend of mine came around and I wasn't that involved in the issue at all. I'd just come off maternity leave. My research as an academic is in vulnerable work. And so it's not in this space. And I've started researching in it now. But the um, my friend came around to pick up my son and she said, did you know that there was a church on South Road in Adelaide that had a billboard that said, write to your MPs to demand they vote against abortion up to birth. And the council made them take the billboard down. So that 
upset me because I've written about freedom of speech um, and pluralism as being important components of a democracy like Australia. So I wrote an opinion piece and wrote to the advertiser, opinion editor, and, and spoke to him on the phone. And he said, look, I'd like to publish your piece, but it's just not true. The reason the billboard got taken down is because it was inaccurate. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the, the bill doesn't allow abortion up to birth. That's a pro-life lie. And so I was like, look, if I can prove to you and that the legislation allows abortion right up until birth, will you publish my opinion piece? And he said, yes. So I got him the legislation and I showed him the bit which allows abortion throughout pregnancy at any gestation for any reason. There is nothing in the law in South Australia at the time, but also across Australia, wall to wall, there's no provision that takes into account that after 20 weeks, you've got a child that's gestationally viable, that at 28 weeks, there's like a 90% chance that that child will live. And yet in Australia, um, all our laws allow abortion right up until birth and on demand. So, you know, he published the opinion piece and then my life kind of exploded and I started getting more and more involved in the issue. Yeah. And how's that been getting involved in it? Because I know this is a, cause I talk about mm. very politically sensitive things mm. as well, but I don't even think as so as this, like yes. this is very yeah. politically yeah, sensitive. Yeah. It's career suicide. So oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. how, how has that been? I guess your, yeah. your private life, your yeah. public, like even friends you've got, yes. cause like you and I both have friends which disagree on opinions yeah. we have, but yeah. something is strong. How's that been? Well, I like to think that in Australia, we can respect the diversity of opinion that exists and that we should be able to be friends with people that disagree with us. I think mm. increasingly there's this polarization mm. and there's this sort of ideological drive that if you don't agree with me on something or you don't agree with kind of the dominant establishment view, then you're kind of ostracized. So obviously I went into this with my eyes wide open. Mm. <laughs> I sort of knew that um, this was going to be unpopular, particularly within the academy. So I knew that within the university sector, I was putting it all on the line to begin researching in this, to begin speaking out publicly against this, because in the other area that I research, um, justice for working people, I very much comply with the dominant establishment narrative there. So I'm a, a bit of a darling in that area, yeah. you know, but I knew that this was like throwing a bomb and waiting for it to explode. And, you know, sure, soon enough, like once I posted my first social media posts um, on July 1, I think it was last year, I knew that the attacks would start coming. And, you know, I was at the Prime Minister's Jobs and Skills Summit in um, Canberra, and I got a call from my dean telling me that our Twitter account at the law school had been trolled by people um, calling for me to get sacked, in particular, Leah Marone, who was the president of the Australian Women's Lawyers Association. So not a small figure, someone with power. And she had written on my employer's account. So she hadn't bothered trolling me on my personal account. She was going after my job and she trolled me there and um, said it was a complete embarrassment for the university to employ me. And so I decided to call her out. To call her out. So I did a reel to social media and I just said, you know, this is a woman that's the president of the Australian Women's Lawyers Association. The law is about protecting the vulnerable, but it's also about fundamental freedoms, such as the right to free speech. And I said, you know, we don't all have to agree with Leah um, to be employed. And I had dare she call for the university to sack me. And so then she wrote a comment on that reel saying, I wasn't calling for the university to sack you. I was just calling for them to stop supporting you. So then I stepped it out. I replied and I said, Leah, you were calling for them to, you said I was a complete embarrassment. You wanted them to stop supporting me. Yeah. So what did you want? Did you want them to not talk to me in the office? Did you want them to stop giving me a physical office? Maybe I would have to work from home. Like what were you actually meaning? It was clear that she was going after my job. And you know, 
interestingly, the president of the SA Women's Lawyers Association, Marissa Mackey, she thought people would think that I was talking about her. So she said if I didn't take the reel down by 5 p.m., she was going to sue me. Um, and, of course, I didn't take the reel down. I did another video calling her out for not, you know, standing with me on this. And I, I called her out the intimidation. But, you know, it's kept coming. The advertiser went after me with a big story, anti-abortion lecturer under fire. But if you read the article, you realise there's one anonymous former student that's quoted. Um, they, 95% of the comments were on my side. Students were writing in, um, the Student Law Society wrote in in my support. So, you know, I'm sort of realizing that the attacks are gonna come as you probably get to. When you go against a dominant narrative, you're going to get attacked, but somebody has to do it. Um, I think I've realized that, you know, I'm 40 this year. I'm a professor of law. If I don't call out what I think is the biggest human rights issue of our time, then who will? And how has been, I guess, the, the public trial? Because it's one thing having other professionals or maybe the newspaper go against you. But yeah. like you said in that, you said 90% of the comments are on They were on side. my side, yeah. And, and I yeah. would think even if, and I was speaking to you just before the interview mm. saying, I don't really know where I fall on this. I've never yeah. thought about it yeah. that deep. Yeah. You have like the Roe versus Wade and I'm yeah. like, should I really get... I understand both yeah. arguments of yeah. this because if I was 15 and got someone pregnant, I'm like, oh my God, yeah. what's my life? But then I never knew where our laws actually mm. sat in that. But where has almost the public opinion been? Like yeah. 90% on your side, I guess. Yeah. That's more so mm. where people actually feel. Well, that's true. But so an Ipsos poll just done a couple of weeks ago found that only 31% of Australians support abortion up to 20 weeks. Mm. And yet in Australia, abortion is allowed up until 40 weeks, you know, up until the up until full term. And so in Victoria in 2011, a child was killed through abortion at 37 weeks. And that child was physically healthy and the mother was physically healthy. And yet they killed that child for a psychosocial reason you know and to me i had my own son born at flinders hospital at 37 weeks and holding him i mean you're holding a baby and i would say 99 percent of australians would be against abortion at 37 weeks um, the reality with abortion after 20 weeks is the child is too big to break apart so the the method of abortion prior to that for that second trimester which is when a child can actually feel pain is actually to go in with metal forceps and to rip off one limb and to pull out the limb rip off the other limb and pull out that limb and take the baby apart piece by piece and to finally crush the skull and then the abortionist has to assemble all the pieces of the child to make sure that they got everything because if they didn't it's dangerous for the woman that's called retained products of conception so that's a dilation and evacuation abortion it's disgusting because it's done without pain relief. Like in no parliament in Australia have they voted to give pain relief to a child going through that operation. And yet at 18 weeks, from 18 weeks gestation in, in utero, if you have to do fetal surgery, pain relief is mandatory. You know, and with animals, our animal research ethics guidelines say you have to give pain relief to animals when they're halfway through their gestational period. And yet for children in utero, we just allow this atrocity to happen. And I, it really breaks my heart to think of that um, because I have had children. And so to think of a child who is in the safest place um, and feeling so comfortable and safe and then to suddenly be awoken by metal forceps ripping apart a limb, it's, it's really disgusting. But with late-term abortion after 20 weeks, the child is too big to break apart and take her out that way. So they actually um, kill the child first through um, inducing a cardiac arrest. So that child has a heart attack, which again is an experience of pain. And then they have to induce labor in the mother. So she delivers vaginally a dead baby. 
And so in my mind, like when I started researching this, um, I was like, well, why can't they just deliver that child alive? Because that child is capable of being born alive. So, you know, I think if Australians knew about this, and so that's why I've decided to speak up because my job is to educate people because once they're educated, they will be activated because you can't not hear this stuff and not care. I was pro-choice in my early 20s. I was a feminist at Sydney University, but I just had never looked into abortion, you know? Um, and so I am receiving overwhelming public support in what I'm doing. There's the trolls, but I think they're just, you know, mouthpieces for the abortion lobby, which has a lot of money. But in reality, in the public, I, I largely receive positive um encouragement and support for what i'm doing yeah and i guess as as anyone should even if you disagree with it people standing up and saying i believe this is wrong and actually showing evidence and showing hey this is the mm. realism of it it's yeah. not this you know this tiny little uh, jelly bean yes. this is a human like well, this at thing. what point yeah. do you at what point do we give rights yeah. to yeah. this child and yeah I think the most shocking thing of what I've seen of that you'd exposed, and and I, I honestly believe, you, like I would have never heard about this unless you bit the bullet and sort of took it on the chin and mm. went public with this, mm. is these babies being born alive yeah. after a failed abortion. Yeah. Ben, can you can you talk on that? And yeah, I saw so, an interview you did with with Sky about um, a baby Jessica Jane yes. being born at twenty three weeks. Can you talk over how yeah. that process actually goes and how common that is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was pro-choice in my twenties and it was through a friend asking me questions and me investigating it and I realised that every abortion kills a human being. So if I was for abortion, I had to be okay with some circumstances, it's acceptable to kill an innocent human being. So I changed my view on that, but it was not until 2019 that I realized that children were born alive after an abortion. I, I just didn't know that that was the thing. I thought that was like a pro-life conspiracy I theory. I think most people don't <laughs> yeah. know that's a thing. They I, I, don't. I, until yeah. I was watching in the last couple of days. Mm. What, yeah. And when I was told about it I, yeah. from from people telling me about you, yeah. I was like, no, that's, that's bullshit. And that's a conspiracy. That's, that's no way. dedicated misinformation by certain people, powerful people to stop this. So the WA Health Minister, Amber Jade Sanderson, she has said explicitly, there is no such thing as a failed abortion. A baby is not born alive after an abortion. And the Liberal minister, the liberal leader in WA, she has said, we shouldn't be reporting these live births and deaths to the coroner. So there's an active kind of cover-up. And so I uncovered mm. the Jessica Jane story. Um, I was on a plane to Canberra at the time and, you know, just before they say you've got to turn your phones off. I yeah. was sort of, I was at that moment and I, I was at the time I'd been appointed by the federal government to review the migration program. So I was going to Canberra every week. But as I was looking, um, I, I just had seen a news clip, like Andrew Bolt had written something about a, a child being born alive called Jessica. And so I started doing research and I found the coroner's report from Greg Kavanagh and I, I downloaded it just before the plane took off. So I was able to read it and I was just blown away, like mind blown because I knew the statistics. So I knew that between 2010 and 2020, 724 children had been born alive and left to die without a legal right to care in Victorian Queen's life. I could see that from the health reports. So 720, so you're talking it's one a week? One a week, yeah. It's one child a week in just two states that collect yeah. data. But they don't give you any further data on how old was the child, how how long did they live for, were they physically healthy? But Greg Kavanagh's report breaks it open because what happened was Jessica Jane, she was born alive unexpectedly. The, the mother had gone in for the abortion for a psychosocial reason. The child was unexpected. Um, she was worried about her career. Just before we move on, what, what constitutes a psychosocial yeah, reason? It's really Because that seems very open. That, yeah. I feel like I'm like, I feel a bit 
stressed or depressed yeah. about what my life. And I feel like a lot of yes, a lot of people would have that. Like I've yeah. got someone who just they just found out they were pregnant, yeah, and weren't. And he was like, "Oh my, like I'm a bit <laughs> yes. stressed." Is yeah. that what is actually yeah. a psychosocial, psychosocial reason? Yeah, psychosocial is a very broad category that refers to anything that affects quality of life or well being. So a mother might be going through job loss, relationship breakdown, depression, anxiety, housing stress you know, anything that relates to that. And the reality is one in five women will have um, anxiety and depression in pregnancy. Like it's known to bring on mental health mm. issues. And as someone that struggled with postnatal issues, like I've experienced that firsthand. And so the idea that you could kill a child in utero that's viable and could be induced alive because of a mental health reason, you know, a very broad reason, it just... It flies in the face of human rights, and I think that's really important to identify that this is a this is a human rights issue. These are children in utero that are human beings are viable and no longer dependent on the mother's body for survival, which is why the my body my choice argument it just does not apply to children after twenty two weeks. Yeah. And so, with babies born alive, with Jessica, her mother her mother said. Um, that she was 19 weeks. And so the doctor induced labor, assuming that the process of labor would be so traumatic for the child that the child would be born dead or live for a matter of moments. But when Nurse Williams delivers Jessica, she discovers that the child is alive. She's a little girl. She's got good APCAR scores, um, which is her responsiveness at birth. She weighs 515 grams and she's like crying as children are when they come out. And so she calls the abortionist who's not there and says, what do I do? And the doctor says, it doesn't give her any instructions. In fact, he says, so, and he hangs up the phone. Which, which is sickening. I, I've heard yeah, this yeah. bit, a, a doctor, I don't care yeah. what sort of doctor you are, yeah. You you saying so about yes. that is that it's is he, sh he should be, lose his like, yeah. license from there if you yeah. ask me yeah and nothing happened to him and yeah. you know I read and the coroner is scathing of the doctor in the report but nothing happens to him and you know you read the transcript of their conversation and so then Jessica is left in a metal in, on a metal kidney dish wrapped in a little blanket on a metal kidney dish for eighty minutes in an empty room. And, you know, you think about the fact that as a, when a child is born, they want to be held. They want that skin-to-skin -skin contact that's meant to be really important for relieving their stress and their anxiety. And yet there was Jessica discarded on a metal kidney dish for 80 minutes. And so when I read this, I thought, I am, this is, this gives, this gives colour and description to the numbers. Like there's one child every week born alive in just two states without a right to care. But through Jessica's story, we yeah. can see what happened. And then after that, I found another coroner's report. This one wasn't released publicly, but it was a, a child born at Westmead Hospital dumped in a medical waste bin while still alive and breathing. Yeah, it's it's shocking. So I've got that report. Oh. I gave that to the Senate inquiry. Um, again, they whitewashed it. They just did not, they did not refer to Jessica's coroner's report. They didn't refer to the Westmead baby's coroner's report. And yet in that report, Janet Stevenson, the coroner, she says, that she'd heard of many terminated fetuses, that's her words, that are born alive. And she said there was a total abrogation of responsibility on behalf of the people who were meant to care for that child when born alive. You know, and- It's sickening, It's sickening. It? And, and so those reports were in 1998. So this has been going on for over 20 years and nothing has changed because just this month, I uncovered another story, a baby Xantha, whose parents went in for the abortion because she had Down syndrome. And so I really want to make it clear that in my view, that's just disability discrimination. Nine out of 10 children in who get diagnosed with Down syndrome are killed in utero. And yet 
all the research on Downs suggests that those children live happy lives and their parents are actually happier for having them. Like that's that the surveys of siblings and families of uh, who have, you know, when the child has Down syndrome suggests that it does not affect quality of life. And yet, you know, so baby Xantha at 19 weeks, they went into a Queensland hospital because she had Down syndrome. The abortion didn't go to plan. The child was born alive. She was dumped in a hospital room for seven minutes on a, on a kidney dish. Um, before she died and that was just in 2020 so look it's really clear this is happening but it's being covered up and there was recently a senate inquiry led by Marielle Smith and the report only quoted abortion providers to justify this practice and to say that it doesn't really happen it's one of those things, and I don't even think this issue I don't think where you fall on the spectrum of being pro-life pro mm. I don't think this is a pro-life pro-choice issue mm -hmm. I, I I think this is a human rights issue because I can see personally, and I'll probably have different view to you, I can yeah. see at points where, you know, an abortion, you might go like, yeah, okay, we're going yeah. to have an abortion. Yeah. It's at X amount of weeks. Yeah. But I think even anyone, even if you spoke to the most like pro-choice person, yeah. they'll go, oh, well, the cutoff is going to be X amount of yeah. weeks. And I've seen a lot of interviews yeah. like on the street with people yeah. at these sort of rallies. Yeah. Oh, when yeah. would you think? Oh, well, 20 weeks is yes. too late. Yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, and that's on the side. That's yeah. more what some people are pushing for. Absolutely. But yeah. I think you could make the argument that when the baby is in the mother, it is a vessel of the mother. Mm -hmm. You are a pair at that point. Yeah. But my understanding of what it should be, what the law should be, is once you're separate from the mother, yeah. That is a that is an Australian. That yeah. that's a, another human. It is that. Yeah. Then it's not. You yeah. don't have the choice on that yeah. anymore. Yeah. That person, like all Australians, has access to healthcare, and yeah. doctors should do do no harm. They, they yeah. do the best they can do. Yeah. Given those circumstances. So I completely agree with you. These are children that fall through the cracks. They're born, but they're not counted as Australians, and they're not treated as a person under the law. And yet, under the criminal law, you're a person from first breath. So, you know, if I was walking down the street holding my one day old child and I got killed um, by a drunk driver or murdered, there would be two counts there. Yes. And, and yet here a child is falling through the cracks purely because they survived a procedure that was intended to kill them. Now, the abortion lobby says, oh, this is a non-issue. These children only live for a matter of seconds and they say they actually get care. But you know, I really want to unpack that because I, you know, there's a study in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, a very reputable study. It showed that out of 241 late-term abortions where feticide wasn't given, half the children were born alive and the average survival time was 32 minutes and one child survived for over four hours. So imagine that, like living for 32 minutes even without being held, you know, and without a right to palliative care because a lot of these children may not survive but they should still be given comfort care and palliative care. And, you know, the second point that they receive it, well, who gives it to them? You know, like the, the doctor that ordered the abortion and who carried it out, like are they the person that then picks up and holds this child and comforts this child in the final minutes or maybe hours that they live for? You know, there, there just isn't a legal right to care. And I've had whistleblowers contact me since I've been speaking out on social media and Instagram and TikTok about this. I've had people reach me and say, you know, that there's a child that was just left for five hours in a room or I had to hold the child, but I had to do it alongside my other nurse duties um, because no provision is given for this, you know, so it's, it's really shocking. And, and I think it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm speaking out is because I want to expose this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And can these 
can these kids survive? Like, like yeah. the, these kids that are born and, the, you yeah. know, they're alive for an average of 32 minutes yeah. and, oh, yeah. you know, some up to in the multiple hours, yeah. Yeah. which is even more yeah. sickening. Yeah. Uh, can they survive? Like, if, yeah. if care yeah. was given, yeah. could some that Some of them could survive. Into, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some of them could totally survive. So from 22 weeks, you've got viability, but it increases the closer you get to labor, to birth. And so, you know, we've got abortion survivors worldwide. We've got Melissa Odin from the US who was dumped again in a medical waste bin found and lives uh, lives today and she's an outspoken advocate for you know abortion um like for the rights of these children you know to care so it absolutely can happen you know the smh had a story about a child a little girl in new south wales she was 28 weeks gestation and her parents aborted her because she just had one deformed hand so just imagine that you know like yeah. killing a child in utero inducing them dead because they've got one hand that doesn't quite work and so um, if that child had been born alive, she would absolutely be able to live at 80 to 90%, you know, chance of actually nothing wrong with her, you know, no, nothing wrong with her um, at that gestation. It just, seem, it, it just seems like in Australia that this is such a weird thing for everything else we've got. Yeah. Like, you know, I travel yeah. a lot yeah. and it seems like we are like the most nanny state, like I said yeah. in the beginning, that our, our speeding laws yeah. are really tight and all these other laws are really yeah. tight, but this just seems yeah. insane. And Do you want to know why it's happened though? Yeah. Yeah. So I started looking into this, um, like why are our laws and our politicians so extreme on this issue, but the Australian people aren't. And I realized the disconnect was because Emily's List was created in 1996 and Emily's List is a it was solely created to get pro-abortion laws through, right. okay? And so there was a bunch of women in the Labor Party that said, we want to make abortion up to birth and we're going to only fund and support women in the Labor Party who are pro-abortion. So they started pre-selecting aggressively pro-abortion women, not just people that are pro-choice, like maybe you might be, but people that are aggressively pro-abortion. They actually think it's a good and so then these women have now stacked the Labor Party um, and it's now been like a disease that's infiltrated the Liberal Party and it's just infected the entire political culture. So we have politicians in Parliament who are aggressively pro-abortion. There'd be no reason that they would ever ban abortion on. So for example, I'm from India originally and the country that I'm from, sex selective abortion is an issue. There'll be 6 million fewer girls in India by 2030 because we're being killed in utero just because we're girls. And we know this is an issue in, South, in, in Australia. So in Victoria, there's 125 boys being born to 100 girls. In so, certain sorry, that's an issue as well. People are Killing having- Killing babies because they're girls, yeah. See, that's insane. It's insane. So, so, this, yeah. so this is sort of my argument on it, is I understand certain elements of abortion i yeah. get it for yeah. and people always bring up terms of rape yeah. but it seems like that is a such a one yeah. percent issue that it's like yeah. okay we can understand a lot of yeah. that but yeah. that is not the majority yeah. of the abortions and i can also understand some medical things yeah. and other bits and pieces yeah. but things like and like, like sex selection yeah. is just something that i didn't yeah. even think it, it doesn't seem – do you have to give any reason for an abortion? Like if, well, if so up until viability, abortion is just on demand everywhere. Yeah. So you can just get an abortion for any reason. Then after 22 weeks in most places, two doctors have to approve. But the second doctor doesn't even have to see the woman. She, they just have to consult the file. And so if you go in for the abortion – and the underlying premise is my body, my choice. And there's nothing in the legislation that says you've got to take into account this child is viable or you've got to take into account the reason. That means abortion is legal for any reason yeah. up until birth. And the second doctor, like the two doctor rule really doesn't do anything. It's no protection. 
And so that's why in Victoria, in certain ethnic communities, you've got 125 boys to 100 girls. It's why New South Wales Health, when they did a survey, they found that close to 10% of practitioners had been asked about killing a child because she was a girl. You know, Dr. Mark Hobart in Victoria, he actually said, I don't want to perform an abortion because you want to kill this child on the grounds of sex. And he got censored by the medical board because he didn't, you know, he was for equality. And so I feel like it's this kind of stuff that you've got to get out there. So in South Australia, I have been managed to, I have successfully lobbied for a ban on sex selective abortion that have just been in WA trying to lobby for that there. Mm. You know, and all these supposedly pro-women politicians like Amber Jane Sanderson, they won't have a bar of it. You know, they, they won't have a ban in their legislation on sex selective abortion. And like I am from an ethnic community and I grew up in a culture that definitely valued my older brother more than me. And yet I'm talking to these like white politicians who just don't get it. And so that that is deeply frustrating for me um, that we can't even agree that sex selective abortion is wrong. Like I get that you and I, and a lot of Australians are going to agree with me on abortion at early gestation. Mm. I get it. But surely we can agree that, a, that we shouldn't be killing girls in utero just because they're girls. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Or just be, or a lot of issues too. Yeah. Like, yeah, a lot of it, like, it's like, well, like babies like to mind. die, another issue. Like that's, yeah. that's, another, that's another one, right? Um, you know, like it's just sort of, it just sort of seems common sense. But one of the problems I think is that the mainstream media doesn't report on this. So I've produced a research report on the West Australian bill and I've talked about the sex selective issue. And yet, you know, the, the, the media just, it's, it's almost like they're in cahoots with the abortion lobby where there's a lot of money. You know, there's 88,000 abortions every year. It's a leading cause of death in Australia. It means there's a lot of money for every abortion that takes place. And so I don't know, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I don't get why the media doesn't cover this. Mm. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of that when you start peeling back curtains mm. on things, you start seeing where funding is coming from, where the funding into different political yeah. parties is, yeah. and, and people just not wanting to talk about some issues like this because of the backlash. Yeah. Well, so Mia Friedman, do you know who she is? Yes. Yeah. So she, <laughs> I, I posted about baby Xantha, the little girl that was born alive and left to die. And Mia Friedman's comment on my social media was, are you a medical doctor? Genuine question. Anyway, I then wrote and said, you know, clear it's from my bio. And if you Google me, it's very clear, I'm a professor of law and I'm talking about the legal um, situation in relation to abortion law. Anyway, she then did another comment that was attacking me. And I did a real calling her out because, you know, I look at someone like Mia Friedman, again, claiming to be a feminist, claiming to be pro-woman and her own very big media company receives money from the abortion industry. Mari Stopes is a long-term advertiser on her sides. And you sort of think, well, are you independent then, Mia, when you are talking about this issue or when you're asking a so-called genuine question? Like, it doesn't seem very genuine. Yeah. Um, you're just trying to discredit me and intimidate me using your bigger megaphone. And, you know, I won't have a bar of it. Like, I'm really clear on the fact that I'm going to take people on and I might just be little me and they might have all the power. But it's really important that we start doing this or we're going to have a country that we just don't recognise. Yeah, but that is where something, for someone like you, that's where social media He's yeah. so great. Yeah. Social media has its own censorship issues. It absolutely it does. does yeah. But at least it's not playing into the censorship of like local or state governments. Yes. At least it's at that level yeah. of Silicon Valley, which which can be a huge issue as well. Yeah. But on this, you say like this sort of feminist issue, these like pro-women, but you're like, well, this is pro-women. Like yeah. where is this? Where does this differentiate from? Because people will claim this is a Christian issue. This yeah, isn't. Mm. And as a lawyer, 
you would say it's a, yeah. a law issue. How would you, yeah. where do you so, differentiate that if someone were to yes. bring that argument to you? So I think it's really unfortunate that the public image of people that are against abortion is that they're white, old and Christian. Like I just think that is so unfortunate because the reality is if you care about human rights, you should be against abortion. And you know, I think for me, we live in a world where we've got a separation of church and state in Australia. We live in a secular world. Well, also society. a very non-religious country. Exactly. Australia is And so to make very... the argument against abortion based on some random verse in the Bible mm. is wrong in my view. Like that's not what I do. Like, you know, when I talk about justice for migrant people, I can't talk, I can't refer to some Bible verse about it. I, you know, it's really important that we make our arguments based in philosophy, science, and, you know, the data and evidence, but you can do that on abortion. Like I think the reality is is um, every abortion kills a human being. Now, you might not think that that human being gets rights until maybe they can feel pain or maybe until they're conscious or maybe until um, they're viable, you know. But the reality is science is moving viability back really even earlier and earlier. Like in 1969, it was 28 weeks. Now it's something like 22 weeks. We've had babies survive at 21 weeks. Wow. But imagine, assuming that that's where it is, you can make the argument that at that point, you know, you're killing a child and inducing them dead when you could be inducing them alive and placing them up for adoption. And so you don't need, you don't need religion to tell you that is, that's the right thing to do. Like you don't need religion to tell you that killing girls just because they're girls is wrong. You don't need religion to tell you that killing babies because they're disabled is wrong. You know, you don't need religion to tell you that leaving children to die once born alive without a legal right to care is disgusting. Like that's just a human, a humanity thing. Like if you're a human being, you should care about the human rights of children in those contexts. So, you know, I think that's really important. I have had people try to label me as like anti-women, but again, I reject that. You know, if you look at the history as I have, so the first wave of feminists, they were all staunchly against abortion because they knew that free, easy access to abortion only helped men because, you know, it's the woman that is being coerced into it by her socioeconomic circumstances. So people like Mary Lee and Elizabeth Nichols, who got us the right to vote in Australia, they were all pro-life. Same with Enid Lyons. Um, in America, same, same thing. The suffragettes were all pro-life. It was the second wave of feminists. So and originally they weren't against they weren't for abortion but they kind of got co-opted by the abortion lobby something happened where they got co-opted and there's a lot of research on this and it shows how they then made the abortion course synonymous with women's rights but what they did is they let men off the hook and they let workplaces off the hook so instead of corporations having to provide you know family-friendly workplaces so that if a woman got pregnant she was genuinely enabled and empowered to be a mother they said, well, you can just, the women don't need to be pregnant. They can just get abortion. And so there's a lot of critiques about how second wave feminism really hurt women. There's also research to show that the majority of abortions are for a socioeconomic reason. So research by the Good Market Institute. And also in South Australia, for example, 96% of our abortions are for a socioeconomic mental health type reason. And so for me, I look at that and I think, why aren't we addressing the root cause like if women are homeless, let's give them a home and then see if they abort their child. You know, if women are in insecure work, let's address that, you know, and, and, and it's almost like women are being shoehorned and funneled into abortion. And so I really think that that's something I'm fighting for as well. Like I'm advocating for better adoption processes, better maternity leave, flexible work, secure housing. Like all of these things are part of a package that support women. And I don't think abortion does that. Especially when 
you know, if you look at this from a pure economic Australia standpoint, we are not reading, uh, meeting, sorry, replacement rate yes. of people either. If you look at yeah. it just pure numbers, yeah. the best thing for Australia is <laughs> yeah. we need more bloody people. Yes. Right? And we're not yeah. meeting those rates. And yeah. a lot of countries around the world yeah. aren't. Do you remember when Peter Costello said, you know, back in the day, mum, we need, people need to have a baby for mum, a baby for dad, and a baby for the country? Yeah. And because we're not meeting our requirements in order to replace our population, which is why we rely so heavily on immigrants. Yeah. So, you know, this is definitely something that we should look at. A lot of people say to me, though, are you, aren't you just damning unwanted children into like a horrible life of foster care? Mm. But there's something that's really important to clarify is that if a child is unwanted by her parents and so, the, you know, there's no hope of family reunification, they don't get placed in the foster care system. They get placed in the adoption system. And in the adoption system, there's huge waiting lists and people go overseas to adopt. Yeah. So if you, instead of aborting a child here in Australia, want to have that child be born and they won't be damned to this horrible life in the foster system, and we really need to fix the foster care system. They'll go into adoption, they'll get a loving family, they'll be with that family for the rest of their life, you know? And so that's, I think, a really important thing to recognise. Yeah, well, I know personally, I know people who have adopted children, uh, say, uh, into U out of Ukraine, places yeah. like this yeah. as well, where there's a lot of that because the availability in yeah. Australia, but... I actually come from a family. My father, who won't mind me talking about this, he was adopted. Oh, uh, so yeah, my grandparents yeah, on that yeah, side yeah. are, I don't guess, not biological. Yeah, but as yeah. someone now a generation, oh, it never even crosses my mind. We've mm. never had really anything to do with the other side of the family. Yeah. We know the biological grandmother. Yeah. But I wouldn't call her nan yeah. I, or grand. I, I wouldn't. Yeah. So I, I've seen how successful that can be. Yeah. You know, my father and his two other siblings. Yeah. So that I can absolutely see the, the success. Of adoption. Yeah. yeah, and we don't talk about that. And the reality is there are no babies available for adoption in Australia. Right. Like it's, it's a minuscule amount because we're now killing them all through abortion. You know, and I, I think that that is something that we really need to focus on. Like... I think if we had a transparent debate about this, most Australians would not want abortion probably after the first trimester, in which case we could induce those children once they're viable and place them for adoption. And to me, that seems like a sensible compromise. Obviously, I'm against abortion full stop. Someone like you is more nuanced. I think most Australians are more nuanced. I think that we need to start talking about some of those compromises. And on those compromises, where do our laws sit with countries that are sort of our peer? We're talking mm -hmm. like the UK, the US, okay. Canada. Where yeah. do we sit in yeah. comparison? So we're there? really extreme. As I, I think I said at the start of this interview, you know, North Korea and China are countries like us that allow abortion up to birth for any reason on demand. But, you know, if you go to the US, almost half the American states have restrictions on abortion after the first trimester you know some have heartbeat laws so child has a heartbeat you can't kill them you know and then um, there's extreme places like california that allow abortion on demand up to birth so in america different states do different things but in australia universally every state territory allows abortion up to birth on demand we're, we're all california across us but you know a place like the uk after 24 weeks if a child um you can't kill that child through abortion unless the child is severely disabled you know, and most European countries have a limit of 12 weeks, which, again, I don't think Australians realise like just how extreme our laws are um, in comparison to our counterparts. So I actually think this will change in my lifetime. Like I, I feel that this is an issue that as people wake up to it, they get they care about. And so I, I do think things will turn around. But and, and we're almost at our lowest point. It's almost like, you know, before I started speaking out last July, 
you know, I'd read a book by Dr. Debbie Garrett. She wrote a PhD on this. It's called Alarmist Gatekeeping. And she develops a theory to look at the fact that if you go against the establishment on the issue of abortion and you dare question it, you're, you have been intimidated, shut down, bullied. And she even quotes the CEO of Sorry, she even quotes the CEO of White Ribbon, who dared to, she, the, you know, White Ribbon is about protecting women against violence. Mm. And so a lot of women who get abortions have been coerced into it through violence. There's a study that shows one in two women in Queensland who were getting abortions, it's a result of violence. So the CEO of White Ribbon wanted to like consult the membership on the issue, but you know, she put it out there, this consultation on abortion and violence, and she just got slammed. She just got, you know, bullied, intimidated by the media, by people on Twitter, you know, and she was just, you know, she just suddenly became like the wicked witch of the West. And and instead of standing her ground and saying, I want to consult the membership because the data bears out the importance of this issue, she apologized, she retracted, and they got rid of her anyway. You know, like within a week or two, she'd been, she'd resigned, you know. And so that's the thing. I sort of knew from Dr. Debbie Garrett's book that you have to be um, prepared to take the fight on. And so I feel like I'm doing that in the last three months. I've reached 5 million people on social media. So right. it's huge the reach you can have. And, you know, obviously I teach at a university and my students, I don't teach on this subject, but I research it. And the students ask me questions in the breaks and things about it. And I can see it sparking a conversation that the establishment would want to have shut down, but I feel like it's it's sort of having a bit of a ripple effect. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I, th I think it will once once it sort of breaks out of the niche of I guess where it is at the moment yes. with yourself into yeah. like the mainstream can only ignore it for so long exactly until like yeah. if, even myself have yeah I've now come across this and <laughs> yes. it's bringing a new audience. I yeah, guess. it's yeah. going and we have to find where is that actual compromise because I don't believe. I don't believe we'll ever completely get rid of abortion, yeah. and nor do I believe that majority of Australians, I think 99% of Australians, mm -hmm. do not agree if they actually knew what our law yeah. says. But how does this affect, the same with these like these live abortions we talked about yeah. for hours, how does that affect the medical staff who are there? Like you go into yes, nursing or a doctor yeah. or yeah. some level of care around the hospital mm. for a reason. You don't get into being yeah. a nurse or a doctor yeah. for the money. Yeah. You know, Some may into MD, but it's too difficult to do. There's yeah. other ways to earn that money yeah. if you really yes. want to. Yeah. How does this affect them? Yeah. And is there this feeling that, if they speak out, they could yeah. then lose that. We saw what happened, yeah. and I can't say the word on social media, but with the Rona virus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you yeah. speak out, you could yeah. lose your job. Yeah. And this seems like an even yeah. bigger cover-up again yeah. that if a nurse yeah. was to go yeah. public. How, how have you seen no, and that mental effect? They can't go public. Like, that's the reality. I've had lots of Australian nurses and midwives reach out to me on this issue, and they are so deeply traumatised by it, particularly the live birth issue. Um, but also the late-term abortion issue, like delivering a – like you go into midwifery to help women deliver their children. Yeah. You don't go into midwifery to deliver a dead child that you've killed prior, you know, and you don't go into midwifery to deliver a child who is meant to be dead, they're born alive, and then they have no rights to care. Like you legally cannot give that child life-saving treatment. You know, like in Germany, there was this little boy, Tim, he was born alive. He was being killed because of Down syndrome, but he was born alive. He was on a metal plate for seven hours. Eventually the nurse relented and she picked him up, gave him a little bit of milk and he went on to live. But then, she, you know, she was censored for that. The hospital was sued. So they literally can't do anything. Their hands are tied. And so it's just horrific to think that there are Australian nurses and midwives in this situation and doctors and they can't do anything about it. They can't speak publicly about it. They will lose their jobs. And 
you know, that's, that's something that really inspires me to do what I'm doing. Like I'm trying to tell their stories. In the Senate inquiry, um, evidence was given of a nurse who had delivered a child at about 25, 26 weeks, born alive. And she was instructed by the doctor to say that the child was pre-viable, so 19, 20 weeks. You know, and again, the Senate inquiry report led by Mariel Smith did not refer to that witness testimony. You know, like it, it was just, ex, it's, ex, it's, it's mind-blowing to me that they, that they cover this up at that level. You know, like they heard testimony of coroner's reports, children being left to die for hours, nurse testimony, and yet none of that was in there. It was just quotes from the abortion lobby and abortion providers, you know, and that to me is the extent of the cover-up. So, you know, I think, I think we have to sort of start talking about this ourselves. So even people like you now, you know, like you know about it, you're doing this podcast interview, I think people listening, it's incumbent upon people to find out more. So on my website, drjoannahow.com, I have fact sheets where I've fully referenced them. You know, and my job's on the line. I'm a professor of law. I could lose my academic career if I'm lying to people about this. You know, in fact, my dean called me when I broke the Jessica Jane story. It went a little bit viral on TikTok. And so, you know, there was a complaint about me misleading the public. So she had to do an investigation. And so she had to watch my video. She had to read the Jessica Jane coroner's report. And she cleared me because I was entirely accurate about what I was saying, you know. So I think that's really important. But people have started fake Twitter accounts calling me the professor of misinformation and, you know, that sort of thing. But the reality is it's on us. Like we have to educate ourselves and talk about it. Yeah. And that is something, you know, someone who maybe myself a little bit more down the line mm. than you on social media, yeah. that is something you'll get. You know, I yeah. have been declared an information terrorist <laughs> uh, for reporting on factual yeah. Yeah. things that have happened in, yeah. in war around the world. Yeah. So, and that, that is, and don't get me wrong, that is scary to be labeled a yeah. terrorist or something like mm. uh, misinformation yeah. like yourself yeah. when you're a lawyer. Yeah. That is that yeah. is massive. But what, what I wanted to speak about as well is you speak about like the reporting on this, the mandatory reporting. There's, was it Libby Metham, mm. WA Liberal leader, talking that you don't have to mandatory report? Yeah, I could this. not believe this. So Libby Metham stood up in the WA Parliament and instead of saying, what a travesty, children are born alive after an abortion and left to die without a legal right to care, she stands up and she says, we should not have mandatory reporting to the coroner because it's too traumatic for the parents, for the families. You know, like never mind the child that's been born, who's literally the most vulnerable person in that hospital, who's just left on a kidney dish to die, you know? So I just couldn't believe that she could be against mandatory reporting, but that is actually the law, you know, that, that these decisions aren't reported to the coroner, you know, and it is covered up, you know, because I think people realise that if these stories are exposed, it's going to make them look really, really bad that this is a consequence of abortion up to birth. You know, the reality is the more you have abortion up to birth, the more children are going to be born alive. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think the cover up is, is, is something that's really important. So I feel like I'm fighting for the freedom to have the conversation, the importance of investigating the issue, but also then I'm also fighting for the rights of these children in utero. So it's a fight on many levels. Yeah. Mm. And and there's groups that should be behind you on that, which I feel that yes. aren't behind you yep. on this. And you've just had on August the 31st, a Senate inquiry yep. into this. What came of that? Because I know yep. you did speak yep. of a little bit in both this and other interviews that it was more 
from almost the pro-abortion lobby yeah. they took a lot of the information from. Can you tell us about yeah, how that really, inquiry went? It's it's so interesting. So this inquiry was announced. It's to look at the children, um, the human rights, children born alive protection bill that's currently before the Senate. And all that that bill would do is give a right to equal treatment under the law. So if a child is born alive as a result of abortion, they should be treated no different to any other child who's born in Australia. So that's a simple equality principle. It, it should be non-controversial. The Senate did an inquiry into this. Senator Mariel Smith from Labor was leading the inquiry. I had a day of oral evidence. So I know that they heard the evidence They because I presented it. You know, I shared with them the academic study on how long these children live for. I shared with them the coroner's reports and you know, they, they heard testimony from, from nurses and other whistleblowers who didn't give their name, but spoke to what they'd seen and heard. And yet when the report came out, the majority report predominantly quotes the abortion lobby. And so, you know, they, there's sort of a couple of lies in it. They say children, if they're born alive after an abortion, only live for a matter of moments or seconds. And we know from the peer-reviewed journal articles it's just not true. They also say these children receive care already, but they don't because we know that from the coroner's reports. We know that from baby Xanther in 2020. You know, um, they say these children are going to die anyway. But again, that's not something we know because 44% of abortions after 20 weeks are late term in Victoria are for a psychosocial reason. So they're on perfectly physically healthy children with physically healthy mums who those children would survive. So there was just lie after lie that was in this report presented as facts. And, you know, at at the time, Mariel Smith was actually following me. So once I presented evidence at the Senate inquiry, she started following me on Instagram. Um, you know, and and the minute I called her out and I said, "What is what is this thing? What is this report? It's like a cover up, a whitewash." You know, and I've I've presented at lots of Senate inquiries in my career, and usually my evidence is presented in the report uh, as a as a respected academic in the country. And yet this Senate report had nothing of mine, nothing of the other academic, uh, Johnny Sacker, who also presented, but just littered with the abortion lobby quotes. And so to me, it really felt like a cover-up. And I had high hopes that they would acknowledge the problem, but they just didn't. And what does our constitution say about this? We look. Because it, it just yeah. seems like it, it just seems that like it, it's – it just seems wrong. Yeah, so our constitution isn't the same as like the US constitution, mm. right? Where there's a, you know, a right to freedom of speech or a right to life and liberty and security of the person. That's in the US constitution. We just don't have that. Our constitution is really differently written. Um, so it really doesn't have a right to freedom of speech or a right to accurate reporting by governments. You know, there, there just isn't any of that. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that the Senate committee report dropped and it was pin drop silence for the mainstream media. Yeah. Like, nobody reported, the ABC, the Australian, none of them. And yet when there'd been other inquiries about abortion in this country, the Guardian and the ABC and the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald, they've all reported on them, but it's because for the first time, perhaps, this was an issue where the abortion lobby and industry was in the wrong and they just didn't want to touch it. They didn't want to expose it. Yeah. And so to me, that's a that's a massive indictment on people that are meant to be journalists. And you say that in the Senate inquiry as well, you told Sky News that six women just didn't bother showing up. Oh, yes. So, you know, yeah, it was. So the, the oral evidence, um, so there was a day of oral evidence and, you know, the only senators that were there from the committee <laughs> was Senator Mariel Smith, who's chairing, so she really had to show up, and Senator, Senator Anne Urquhart from Labor. But then the other women on that committee did not bother up, bother showing up. They get more money for being on a Senate committee. Yeah. Like they actually get paid more by us, the Australian people, for doing that job. And yet 
they didn't even bother showing up. Like it's just mind-boggling to me, the poor quality, like the poor caliber of politician that we have in this country. And it really shocked me that they could be so beholden to a very powerful abortion lobby. Like I, I, I really thought that they would be I just thought there would be like a fairness to this. I, I thought they would at least, you know, acknowledge the Jessica Jane case, the Xantha case, the Westmead baby case. I thought they would extract the data. So what we have from Queensland and uh, Victoria Health Department reports, there's tables which have data on how many children are born alive. I thought they would at least extract that, but they didn't. They had none of that evidence in there. You know, they relied on the unsubstantiated opinions of abortion lobbyists. It just seems like... I think these people not have showing up, but Australia's not showing up for these children. Yeah, that's that's such a good way of putting it. That's right. Like, you know, and I, I think about myself, like I was pro-choice. I, I never looked into it. I think most Australians don't look into this and we really do need to wake up. Like, I think that's what I'm trying to do um, on social media. I really am trying to just wake people up to this because, you know, I think if Amber Jade Sanderson can say publicly, babies are not born alive after an abortion. And yet, again, pin drop silence, nobody calls her out. And she's still the health minister and one of the most powerful figures in the West Australian Labor Party. That's an indictment on our country that we don't hold our elected representatives to account. And, you know, you alluded to the pandemic and there's other issues in our history where we can see that sometimes, you know, powerful forces have really dominated the narrative and, you know, there's been gross human rights abuses as a result. And what's what's next for yourself? Oh, okay. So, look, I... I was really thankful to get my promotion to professor. So even after the advertiser went for me publicly and they were clearly, you know, trying to go after my job and other people have done that, you know, I was really happy to get that promotion. Earlier um, this year, I was part of this expert review into the migration program. So I feel like in that area of my research, I'm really thriving and enjoying it. And I'm doing a project that looks at undocumented migrants. So I've been traveling around to farms, speaking to people that literally have no right to stay in Australia. And they do such important work for our country that the food and veg we eat comes from them. So, you know, I feel like I'm really passionate and excited about that piece of research that I do. But also in this space now, I'm really starting to research in the area of abortion and to talk out against it publicly. Um, I think what's I sort of feel like, you know, I'm 40, I've got at least 25 years left. My goal is really to raise awareness in that space because it's not my job to persuade you to agree with me, but I want to present the facts and data and then just start that conversation. And I think the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. And where can people see all your links to your website and everything will be below anyway, but where, where would you point people towards to find out more about this and even independently from yourself? Yes, sure. So if you go to my website, drjoannahow.com and under the facts tab, I've got fact sheets that you can look at. And if you look at the references, um, the footnotes, you can, that those are two primary and secondary sources that you can then go look at yourself. If you want to hear from me, um, I've got my YouTube channel, my Instagram, TikTok at drjoannahow on Facebook at, at drjoannahowofficial. I try to produce daily content. So as you would know, it's like a lot of work being a content creator, but I also love that process of like distilling a message simply for people. Um, So I'd encourage people to follow me to find out more and to spread my platforms out. And then, you know, there's some really um, good 
books on the on the topic. Like I think Alarmist Gatekeeping by Dr. Debbie Garrett is a very good book about the Australian debate on abortion. Um, but I would encourage people just even to start looking at academic journal articles via Google Scholar on the issue of abortion. Like just Google abortion and go to Google Scholar and because they've got academic journal articles there that are freely available. It was through that that it changed my mind. Like I, I started reading what abortion is and what the process was. And there was one article that had pictures of aborted children. And it was really those sorts of things that convicted me. Yeah. Now, is there anything else you think that we've forgotten that we haven't covered? Um, no, I think it's been really comprehensive. I, al so, I always have yeah. to ask because... <laughs> no, I think it's been great. And I just want to thank you for the opportunity because I think it's so rare in Australia that we speak to someone who disagrees with us on something. And you and I have some areas of common ground, but we don't agree on everything on this issue of abortion. And I just love that you reached out to talk about it because I feel like that's what we need to start doing. You know, like if, if someone hadn't challenged me on the issue of abortion, I'd still be pro-choice completely now. You know, yeah. so I feel like we just have to start talking about it and start being braver and listen to each other more and not be as polarised. Mm. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. So I really appreciate it. And people listening know exactly where they can find you and, and follow along. And, you know, when things um, develop in this, you're more than welcome anytime to we can redo this and talk about oh. what's become. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, thank Matt. you very much. Thank you.